Every day, thousands of people visit the palatial grounds of the Austrian Gallery Belvedere, home to the country's finest artwork. Of all the famous artists on exhibition, Gustav Klimt might be the most beloved. The gallery boasts the largest collection of his work in the entire world. The walls are decorated with his landscapes and a few photographs of the artist. But some of his most cherished pieces are portraits, Klimt's signature subject matter. In 1999, gallery visitors enjoyed stunning Klimt paintings of women with drooping eyes gazing out from gilded frames. It'd be hard to ignore the beauty of one portrait in particular. Adela Blockbauer I, sometimes referred to as the Lady in Gold. The painting portrays Jewish aristocrat Adela Blockbauer. She's rendered in Klimt's classic style, her eyes half-closed, a mountain of black hair piled delicately on top of her head. Her gown billows out around her, a mix of bright yellow, gold and brown. In the text accompanying the painting, the Belvedere supplied basic information about the piece, when it was made, what materials were used, and how it came into the gallery's possession, and that the painting was donated by the Bauer family in 1936. To the average person, that detail likely meant nothing. But to Maria Altman, it was everything. That simple line, donated by the Blockbauer family, was the reason why she traveled all the way from Los Angeles to Vienna to speak to the gallery's director. Maria knew the truth. This painting wasn't donated to the museum in 1936 because that would have been impossible. It was still in her aunt's house at that time, and to say it was donated was a generous term. In 1938, the Lady in Gold left the home of the Blockbauer family when the Nazis took it. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In this series, we're investigating the biggest mysteries in the art world. From a da Vinci worth nearly half a billion dollars to graffiti by the elusive Banksy, we'll look at the most notorious paintings on the planet and explore the secrets surrounding them. Today, we're following one woman's attempt to retrieve her family's stolen art, including a Gustav Klimt painting that's been called the Mona Lisa of Austria. The Nazis seized the piece during their World War II occupation of Austria. For decades, the Bauer family tried to win back their stolen paintings. Eventually, it fell to Maria Altman to convince the Austrian government to return the works. But that proved much more difficult than she'd expected. So we're asking, who owns art? And why is it so hard to get back a piece that's rightfully yours? We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day 
at sax.com. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. In the first few decades of the 1900s, Vienna was home to a thriving Jewish community. Many of these people decorated their walls with paintings and photographs and commissioned pieces from prominent artists in the city. Ferdinand Bloch-Bauer and his wife Adela were avid patrons of the arts. Ferdinand preferred more traditional pieces, especially 19th-century Austrian paintings. But Adela was another story. Her niece Maria would later describe her aunt as, quote, a woman of today that lived in a world of yesterday. Adela Bloch-Bauer was fascinated by innovation and progress and resisted the idea that, as a woman, she couldn't participate in certain parts of society. Her artistic interests were far more contemporary. She regularly befriended new local artists, inviting them to her salon and commissioning works from them. But none were as dear to her as Gustav Klimt. According to art historian Monica Strauss, Klimt stood out from his contemporaries. His work focused on the female body and portrayed it in an unexpected way, placing the subject in an ethereal, abstract environment of shapes and color. With his art, Klimt was doing something new, something exciting. In 1903, Ferdinand commissioned the artist to paint Adela. It would take four years for the painting to be completed. Klimt likely made countless sketches of his subject, having Adela sit for him time and time again. The pair must have gotten along well. They were both intellectuals with a passion for fine art and literature. They became close friends. There was even speculation that they had an affair during this time, but it was never confirmed. Regardless, it seemed Klimt's portrait of Adela was a labor of love. The finished product, Adela Blockbauer I, was given to the Blockbauer family in 1907. They proudly displayed it in their home. In the years to come, Ferdinand commissioned another portrait of his wife, and the couple collected many of the artist's other works. By 1923, Adela and Ferdinand owned two Klimt portraits, four landscapes, and many of his drawings. That same year, 41-year-old Adela began drafting a will, naming Ferdinand her sole heir. She also requested that at the time of his death, he donate their collection to the Austrian Gallery Belvedere, also called the Austrian National Gallery. This last detail was not legally binding. It was a request for her husband, something he could consider when writing his own will. 
Apparently, Adela was wise to get her affairs in order so early. Two years later, in 1925, she died of meningitis. Her former bedroom was quickly turned into a shrine, celebrating her love for the arts. The Klimt portraits were put on display, surrounded by flowers. Adela's niece, Maria, was only nine years old when her aunt died. But she knew the Klimt's well. She and her family visited the house on Sundays and holidays, and the paintings were always there. For years after Adela's death, this memorial room stayed the same. Flowers and the Klimt portraits immortalizing her in shades of gold. For about a decade, life continued as usual for the Blockbauer family. Maria grew up and married an opera singer named Fritz Altman in 1937. Soon, Maria was settling into her own life as an upper-class Jewish woman in Vienna. But that sense of calm was short-lived. Maria likely heard about troubling developments in Germany involving Hitler and the Nazis. For a while, it was all very far away. But in March 1938, less than a year after Maria's wedding, the war came to Austria. This was the Anschluss, in which the Nazis took over the entire country, absorbing it into the Third Reich. When the invaders marched into Vienna, Maria watched in horror as many locals cheered them on. Women threw flowers, and church bells rang out in celebration across the city. But for Vienna's Jewish community, this moment marked the beginning of a waking nightmare. Jewish people were targeted immediately, their businesses raided, their homes ransacked. The Reich began something called Aryanization. Basically, Nazis would identify where Jewish people lived and worked, kick them out, and resell those properties to Aryan people. The Nazis would also confiscate any valuables in Jewish homes under the guise that these objects should really belong to Aryans. In the midst of the upheaval, Maria's uncle Ferdinand fled the country, settling in what was then Czechoslovakia. But he didn't take the Klimt paintings. Those remained in Adele's memorial room, displayed in an empty house. In 1938, the Nazi secret police force, called the Gestapo, broke into Adela and Ferdinand's home. They took everything, including the Blockbauer's treasured art collection. The drawings, the landscapes, and the two portraits of Adela, lovingly painted by Klimt, all gone. And when the Blockbauer's eventually tried to recover their missing pieces, they inadvertently kicked off a global controversy. Coming up, the Block Bowers attempt to reclaim their stolen art. They say time heals all wounds, but sometimes time can do anything but. Welcome to Cold Cases, the new Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Carter Roy. Every Monday, Join me as I revisit the clues and miscues of some of the most elusive criminal cases in history. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases explores the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Will justice be served? Only time will tell. Follow Cold Cases free 
and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Now back to the story. When the Nazis seized control of Austria in 1938, the vibrant Viennese Jewish community was ripped apart. People were captured and sent to concentration camps. Those who could fled the country, leaving their belongings behind. That is, if the Nazis hadn't already stolen everything they owned. Maria Altman and her husband, Fritz, desperately tried to leave Austria. But their attempts kept falling apart at the seams. First, they tried using false passports, but this plan failed for reasons that aren't clear today. Then, a friend was supposed to pick up the couple and drive them across the border. But at the last minute, that friend got cold feet. He never showed. In a last-ditch effort, Fritz had his brother drive them to the Dutch border. Miraculously, there was no one there. No Nazi soldiers, no checkpoint. Maria and her husband climbed over the fence separating the two countries and made a run for it. The Altmans managed to emigrate out of Europe, eventually settling in Los Angeles. Whatever valuables Maria and the Blockbauers had left in Vienna didn't seem to matter anymore, not even their art collection. Decades later, it's still not clear what happened to the Klimt paintings during World War II. Historians have estimated that between 1933 and 1945, the Third Reich stole over 600,000 works of art, mostly from Jewish homes. The Nazis liked to imagine themselves as men of culture, Aryan culture, that is. Hitler regarded himself as a patron of the arts and saw the medium as a very important part of his vision for the world. For the party, good art had to fit very specific criteria. Old masters, specifically German painters, were the ideal. More experimental art practices, such as Dadaism, Cubism, or Surrealism, were deemed degenerate. Either way, the Nazis stole it all. And they bent their rules for Klimt. Despite his more modern, experimental style, the Third Reich celebrated his focus on idealism. The Gestapo seized nearly all of Klimt's work. Much of the looted art was gifted to high-ranking Nazi officials. In a matter of years, these men amassed rare collections on par with Europe's top museums. By the 1940s, the entire Blockbauer family's Klimt collection had been distributed to different people. Several of the paintings, including the portraits of Adela, ended up at the Austrian National Gallery. As long as the Nazis were in power, the museum was under their jurisdiction. So it's not hard to imagine many stolen pieces wound up here to be protected on behalf of the Third Reich. Throughout World War II, the Gestapo organized exhibitions featuring their looted art. 
1943 Nazi-run showcase on Klimt was the largest retrospective ever done for the artist. And during one of these showings, Adela Blockbauer I resurfaced. In a document that accompanied the show, Adela Blockbauer I was renamed The Lady in Gold, a deliberate choice intended to obscure the painting's Jewish subject. Many of the displayed works were treated to this kind of whitewashing. The Nazis enjoyed Klimt's work, but they made sure to hide any connection he had to Jewish patronage. After this massive exhibition, Adela Blockbauer I and the other Klimt's from the Blockbauer collection disappeared from public knowledge yet again. Ferdinand might have heard about the Nazi-sponsored art show, but he was powerless to do anything about his paintings. By this point, he'd relocated to Zurich, over 400 miles away from Vienna. It's unlikely he held any illusions of owning those paintings again. But around this time, Ferdinand decided to draft his own will. And in it, he included a section that could, in theory, apply to the artwork. He wrote that upon his death, his wealth should be divided among his remaining heirs, his nephew Robert and his nieces, Louisa and Maria. There was no direct mention of the Klimts, but remember this detail. Ferdinand bequeathed his possessions to Maria and the other heirs. We'll come back to it later. Ferdinand wrote his will in the nick of time. He died in 1945. The same year, the Nazis' reign of terror finally ended. In the aftermath, many European countries, including Austria, had to contend with all the damage the occupiers had wrought. Because of the Third Reich's preoccupation with fine art, they'd accumulated a massive store of paintings and other pieces. These had survived the worst of the wartime fighting. Suddenly, the Austrian government had a priceless collection of art. So the question now became what, exactly, to do with it? In 1946, the country passed the Annulment Act, a law that undid all the transactions made under Nazi pressure between 1938 and 1945. On paper, it sounded like any stolen art by the Nazis could be restored to its original Jewish owners. But it was a bit more complicated than that. The Austrian government said the law didn't extend to certain pieces, specifically artworks deemed to be important to the country's cultural heritage. These were essentially forbidden from being returned. They were simply too important to entrust to a single person. A museum was the only safe, acceptable home for these items. This rationale was a convenient way to hide other, less noble reasons for holding on to the art. After all, an impressive collection would bring more visitors, which meant a bigger profit for the museum. So these institutions had a strong financial incentive to keep their expensive pieces. Even for less significant works of art, the Austrian government made it difficult to seek restitution. To make a claim, Jewish people first had to get permission from the Austrian Federal Monument Agency. And even if the claim was approved, the odds were stacked against the original owners getting all their pieces back. The National Gallery would return certain lesser-value works to Jewish refugees, but only if that person agreed to donate the more expensive pieces to the gallery. And if they refused, 
the gallery could invoke the Annulment Act, faced with the option of getting either none or some of their stolen art collection, many Jewish people chose the latter. In the aftermath of the war, the Block Bauer heirs fell on hard times. So in 1948, Ferdinand's nephew Robert filed a restitution claim on the paintings the Nazis had stolen from his family. He hoped to sell some of the art to pay for their living expenses. At first, the Austrian National Gallery was helpful. Officials helped locate several of the paintings that had been sold to individual collectors. But when it came to the Klimt's, that was another story. The gallery had three paintings, including both portraits of Adela Blockbauer. When the family requested they be returned, the gallery refused. In their understanding, Adela Blockbauer had bequeathed these paintings to the gallery. After all, she'd requested the Klimps be donated upon her husband's death which meant they'd had a claim to the paintings, however tenuous, since she passed in 1925. That didn't make any sense to the Block Bowers. How could the gallery own the Klimps when they'd remained in Adela's room for years after her death? But the gallery simply explained that they had graciously allowed the Block Bowers to hold on to the works during that time, as if it was an act of generosity on their part. Now, however, the situation was different. The Austrian National Gallery owned the Klimts, and they weren't giving them up. However, the institution told Robert it was willing to let some pieces go, lesser-valued paintings and porcelain. But this offer came with a price, the portraits of Adela. The gallery gave this option as if it was doing Robert a favor. By their own logic, they didn't have to give any of these artworks back to the Block Bowers. Of course, the reality of the situation was more complicated. Behind that facade of kindness, the Austrian government was still benefiting from years of Nazi looting, building a massive collection of stolen art under the auspices of preserving cultural heritage. And to Robert, the gallery's offer was nothing more than a dirty deal. But it was also likely the best offer the Blockbauer heirs could expect. They could get at least some of their family's stolen collection. If it meant bending to the gallery's demands, so be it. The family accepted the lesser-valued pieces and sold them for a tidy sum. With the proceeds, Maria Altman and her growing family were able to live comfortably in California. It was a bittersweet outcome but it was better than nothing. According to the international lawyer Vili Korte, it's difficult to overstate the degree of ripoff Jewish refugees experienced while trying to reclaim artwork. This was especially true for Austrian Jewish people. In the 1970s, officials started to intentionally destroy documents that held information about art looting. Without that evidence, it was all the more difficult for anyone to try and claim ownership over a specific work. It also became nearly impossible to know just how much looted art the Austrian government had in its possession. Furthermore, paintings like Adela Blockbauer I were labeled with incorrect information, as if the piece was donated rather than stolen. Other artwork was simply stored out of sight where no one could recognize it. 
For persecuted families, the Austrian authorities seem to be rewriting history, conveniently erasing the bad parts. As time passed, Maria Altman gave up hope that there would be any way to retrieve the remaining pieces, including her aunt's beloved Klimt's. But in the 1980s, a series of events finally put pressure on the Austrian government. Slowly, decades of shady deals and empty promises finally came to light. And it started with one man, Milton Estero. Estero was editor and publisher of the magazine Art News. In 1984, a friend tipped him off about a monastery in Mauerbach, Austria, just a little ways outside of Vienna. Apparently, this location was full of Nazi-looted art that had been taken from Jewish families during the Holocaust. Intrigued, Estero booked a flight to Austria. But when he arrived, the reporter was surprised to receive a cold reception from the country's Federal Monuments Office. Estero explained why he was in town and asked to see the monastery. The authorities refused, but that only made the journalist even more curious. Clearly, the government had something to hide. This one failed visit motivated the entire Art News staff. Reporters started looking deeper at the restitution laws in Austria and how the government handled those cases. It didn't take long to uncover decades of mistreatment and empty promises. Later that year, Art News editor Andrew Decker published the investigative series A Legacy of Shame. It exposed the many ways Austrian authorities had abused restitution laws to exploit the country's Jewish citizens. Decker even found proof the Mauerbach repository was full of stolen artworks. Apparently, a small Austrian newspaper had published the full list of the pieces being kept in the monastery in 1959, over 10 years after the end of the Holocaust. The newspaper didn't have a wide circulation, so Jewish refugees who'd fled Austria likely never saw that list. But Art News had far more readers. Decker's first article spread like wildfire across the United States. For Maria Altman, the news likely wasn't all that surprising. But for many others, the story introduced them to the sheer level of exploitation surrounding Nazi stolen art. For a decade, art news continued to cover not just Austrian art looting, but the issue of restitution in many countries across Europe. As it turned out, the problem wasn't unique to Austria. Germany, many Eastern European countries, and even the Soviet Union were hiding enormous collections of works the Third Reich had stolen. Art News's expose made a real difference. The coverage opened up a broader discussion about art theft, specifically during World War II. People began paying more attention to where exactly a piece came from. In 1995, ownership of the Mauerbach repository was given over to the Jewish community of Vienna. The following year, the group auctioned off the collection, dividing the $14.5 million profit to families affected by the Holocaust. And in 1998, the Austrian government was dealt another blow. 
That year, Austria's Leopold Foundation loaned two paintings by Egon Schiele to New York City's Museum of Modern Art for an exhibit on the artist. But a few days before the show closed, two families came to MoMA with a shocking claim. Those paintings were stolen from them. The claimants were the heirs of people who'd originally owned these works prior to Nazi looting. So in their mind, the paintings shouldn't go back to Austria. The pieces belonged in the United States with the owner's descendants. MoMA initially refused the appeal and packed up the Sheila paintings for shipment. But mere hours before they were supposed to be shipped off, the New York district attorney seized the paintings. The Sheila debacle turned into an international scandal, one that put a spotlight firmly on the Austrian government. The country had to do something to show it planned on improving its management of Nazi-looted art. So, toward the end of that same year, the country passed the Restitution Act. This law made it possible for people to retrieve artworks they'd been forced to donate under the Annulment Act. Finally, it seemed like Austria was willing to make good on their promise to return Nazi loot. For nearly 60 years, Maria Altman and her family had given up all possibility of ever reclaiming their stolen klimts. And even now, when victory seemed within her grasp, the Austrian National Gallery wasn't about to hand over the paintings without a fight. Coming up, the battle for the klimts becomes a worldwide sensation. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Now back to the story. After decades without hope, it seemed Maria Altman could finally retrieve her family's collection of Klimt portraits. Under the 1998 Restitution Act, she could claim them as her family's rightful property. So Maria got to work. She teamed up with a lawyer named Randall Schoenberg, the grandson of an old friend. Randall submitted a formal claim to the Austrian National Gallery, requesting the return of the Klimts. These included some landscapes and the two portraits of Adela Bloch-Bauer. As an added measure, Maria flew to Vienna in 1999 to discuss the matter in person with Dr. Gerbert Frodel, the gallery's director. But if she hoped to resolve the situation amicably, she was sorely mistaken. Frodel was civil with Maria, but when the topic of the Klimps came up, the mood changed. According to Maria, the director said, We have plenty of landscapes. Take the landscapes, but just don't take the portraits. 
It was clear the Austrian National Gallery knew the paintings had been stolen, but it didn't seem to matter. The museum still didn't want to give them up. That same year, the Restitution Committee denied Maria's request for the Klimts. They argued the pieces were just too important to Austrian culture. Even now, after the new restitution laws, it seemed the country was repeating its old argument that certain works of art were so culturally significant they needed to stay in museums. In fact, this is a pretty common way for countries to hold on to stolen or looted items. They claim a government-run museum has unique means to restore and preserve any given work of art. Resources an individual simply wouldn't have. Of course, this logic can only help institutions justify theft and all the other dirty tactics museums use to procure the ill-gotten pieces in the first place, including blatant lies. The Austrian authorities repeated their long-held stance that Adela Bloch-Bauer had donated the Klimts to the museum back in the 1920s. Both Maria and her lawyer knew that wasn't correct. Adela's suggestion wasn't legally binding. Plus, Adela had died 13 years before the Anschluss of Austria. She had no way to know about the horrors that were to come and how her vibrant Jewish community would suffer under the Nazis, whom the Austrian authorities welcomed. If Adela had known her husband and fellow Austrian Jewish people would be persecuted by their own country, she would have never wanted her Klimt portraits donated to the National Gallery. But the Austrian government held firm to their stance. No negotiations, no debate. It was as if Austria was slamming a door in Maria's face. But her attorney, Randall, knew another way to get the Klimt's back. It would be complicated, but he believed it was their best shot. Under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act of 1976, or FSIA, Americans can sue foreign countries from within the U.S. So Maria could file a suit against Austria for expropriating the paintings in violation of international law. Instead of going after the National Gallery, she would claim the country of Austria was holding on to stolen property. But there was one problem. It was unclear if the regulation applied to crimes that occurred before the law was passed in 1976. So Maria and Randall would first have to argue that lawmakers intended for the FSIA to be applied retroactively. If the argument held up in court, then Maria and Randall could pursue their lawsuit against the country of Austria. They opened their case in the California court system. It was a long process, but they kept winning. Austrian authorities refused to accept the verdict, insisting the FSIA could not apply retroactively. Since the Klimts came into the government's care before the FSIA was passed in 1976, they believed Maria's case had no real power. And how could it? She was only one woman fighting an entire country. In June 2004, the final verdict came down. In a 6-3 decision, the U.S. Supreme Court sided with Maria. The judgment was a shocking victory, setting the precedent that the FSIA could apply retroactively. 
But even this success wasn't the end of Maria's journey. She and Randall still had to actually sue the country of Austria and hope they won that case too. This time, they decided to change tactics. Maria was growing older and she was worried this lawsuit would take years. So Randall switched gears, choosing the route of arbitration. Instead of suing, Randall and Maria would negotiate a mutually agreeable outcome with the Austrian government. It was risky to trust the country that had mishandled restitution cases for so long, but it promised a quicker outcome than a formal suit. Randall thought it was a risk worth taking. In 2005, he made his case to the Austrian Arbitration Board. Adela Blockbauer's request was not legally binding, but her husband Ferdinand's will was. He bequeathed his and Adela's belongings to their heirs. It was the same case the Blockbauers had tried and failed to make back in 1948. But by now, the Austrian government had been at the center of multiple scandals about Nazi looted art. Maria's Supreme Court win added even more pressure, and the whole world was watching. Sure enough, in 2006, Maria and Randall got the news they'd wished for. They won again. This time, the decision was unanimous. As of that year, the Klimt paintings officially belonged to Maria and the other Blockbauer heirs. The Austrian government had to return them. This final decisive win was a historic moment, not just for Maria, but for anyone seeking restitution of looted art. In Austria, the decision kick-started a massive countrywide discussion about art and its significance to the country. As a native Austrian, Gustav Klimt was one of the nation's most beloved artists. He depicted his country as a place of refinement, culture, and creativity. In the documentary Stealing Klimt, art historian Tina Walzer explained that giving away these paintings, quote, collided with the idea of Austrian identity. However, there was one final way for the Austrian government to keep the paintings. The arbitration committee had granted the country first refusal. Basically, Austria could buy back the five paintings at market price for $300 million. But ultimately, Austria declined. It seemed the Austrian National Gallery thought they'd expended enough effort to keep these pieces. Now it was time to throw in the towel. Plus, that $300 million price tag was simply too much money. However, other people had a very different understanding of what really happened. According to Austrian journalist Hubertus Chernin, public opinion polls showed two-thirds of Austrians felt the stolen painting should be returned to the Blockbauer heirs. In Chernin's opinion, the statement about the paintings being too expensive was nothing more than a way to save face. By saying they simply couldn't afford the pieces, they quietly glossed over the truth that the whole country had gotten wise to their greediness. So, at the risk of sullying their reputation even more, the gallery relented and sent the paintings back. For Maria, the officials' motives didn't matter. She'd always known the Klimts belonged to her family, and now they were finally coming home. By this point, the stolen Klimts had gained national attention in the United States 
and people were clamoring to glimpse the portraits of Adela Block Bauer. So, in April 2006, Maria worked with the Los Angeles County Museum of Art to display the paintings in a massive exhibit. And then, later that year, she sold almost all of them. The three Klimt landscapes and the second portrait of Adela Block Bauer went up for auction. The choice confounded many people. After all this work, why part with this piece of Maria's heritage? Maria was unfazed by this question. She said she didn't want to keep the paintings for herself, locked away in her house with no one to see them. In her mind, the Klimt's should be on public view, and ultimately, it was her choice to make. It wasn't immediately clear if Maria would get her wish. The four paintings were sold, all to anonymous buyers. When asked, the Christie's auctioneer guessed the pieces had been sold to individuals, not museums. Adela Blockbauer I was purchased for $135 million. Dubbed the Mona Lisa of Austria, it was the most expensive artwork ever auctioned up to that point. The buyer, billionaire Ronald Lauder, chose to display it at his Manhattan gallery. The second Adela Blockbauer painting was finally put on public display in 2014 at New York's Museum of Modern Art. And two years later, in 2016, both portraits were shown side by side at Lauder's gallery. The story of the stolen Klimt's is a bittersweet tale. After more than half a century, Maria Altman and her co-heirs finally decided for themselves what happened to their art collection, only for some of the works to briefly disappear from the public view. More broadly, the issue of restitution remains a complicated, thorny topic. Many people aren't as fortunate as Maria. The government stonewalls them, keeping art under the guise of preserving cultural heritage. The pieces stay in state-run museums, displayed with incorrect details about how, exactly, the work came into their care. So the next time you visit a museum, look a little closer at the wall text. All that information could be true. The year it was donated, the origins of the painting. But there's always a chance things aren't quite what they seem. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. For more information on The Stolen Klimt, amongst the many sources we used, we found the documentary Stealing Klimt extremely helpful to our research. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember... Never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Jaron Cohen, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Georgia Hampton. Edited by Ben Hanani and Angela Jorgensen. Fact-checked by Bennett Logan researched by Chelsea Wood, and produced by Travis Clark. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner.
Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from ParCast, Cold Cases. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, explore the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Catch a new episode of Cold Cases every Monday. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.